Thank you, Sai. Welcome, so glad that you're in the 10 a.m. If you're joining us online, I want to encourage you uh, to lean in, get ready. Uh, and if you're in the room, I want to welcome you to the house. Uh, if this is your first Sunday of the year, we're glad that you are here. Uh, yesterday, we had a scrum for our serving teams and uh, serving volunteers, and it was awesome. And as I drove in, uh, my toddler, uh, Lily Beth, said, oh, we're going to Jesus's house. And so welcome to Jesus's house this morning. Um, I've given this message message the title strength in weakness we're in the book of acts if you if you were around last week or, or caught up with james in week one we're in our first mini series and it's called revival and it's beginning uh, this journey that will be in in the book of acts throughout the year and i find that strength in weakness is actually something we need to grab a hold of on the front end of our study in the book of Acts, because it's so important to get the concept, to understand what God was doing with the early church. And uh, I haven't done this for a while. I was the king of it for a long time, um, starting a preach with a very obscure story that's going to make sense later. And so you get it this morning. Uh, I want to tell you a story about a guy, if you know sport well, if you're particularly interested in cricket, you will know this guy. Uh, his name's Devin Conway. Uh, he plays for New Zealand, but what you might not know is that he is Joburg born and raised. Absolute traitor. And uh, so he's literally been lighting up the, uh, the cricketing world. He had uh, his, his, uh, in his test debut, he scored a double century. Uh, very few have done that. And uh, the one of, uh, there's some bad things about him, but the worst thing about him is that he's a St. John's boy. And uh, if you don't know, I'm a Saints boy. We are not mates. But I did know Devin growing up. Uh, we did play, see, before he was uh, well known for cricket, he was actually a hockey phenom absolutely destroyed on the hockey field uh, and me and Devin played club uh, hockey together but when we were playing school sport uh, he was the enemy and everybody when Devin Conway was on the field was trying to make a plan for how you deal with that beast um, Devin was special in the sense that he is actually and you'll notice if you watch him play cricket he's left-handed which is a uh, when you, when you play hockey, it's a great advantage because in hockey, you don't generally get left-handed sticks. Most left-handed players will play right-handed and they'll go to the weak side and they'll be really strong, able to hit, pass, dribble, and they're generally playing against right-handed players. So they exploit that. Devin Conway was great at doing it and he would destroy players and he could just boss a game and do whatever you wanted to do. And now with this rivalry between Saints and St. John's, it's the only school uh, that you play twice in a year, home and away. And so there's a lot on the line. In my matric year, we had to make a plan what we were going to do to contain the beast that was Devin Conway. And our coach came up with a, a pretty extravagant plan. And probably by most people's standards, if you know anything, uh, it didn't seem like a great plan. Because the plan was this. We were going to take our weakest defender... And we were going to give him the job to mark Devin for the day. Now, that doesn't make sense. Well, the, the, the best player on the field, the strongest player on the field, why would you take your weakest defender and put him on that? Give him that task. Give him that job. See, what you don't know is that that weakest player, our weakest defender on the day, is actually also left-handed. And so where Devin was used to exploiting his advantage over right-handed players, there was now something going wrong. Because now when he would pull to the weak side like he normally does and he could own anyone, he came against someone who even though they were the weakest defender, they had a strength he didn't know about. Because this is the truth, and it's a truth that matters when we look at the book of Acts. It's sometimes weakness and not strength that will bring victory. 
Because what you find in Acts is a whole bunch of weak people being encountered and empowered by the strength of God to bring ultimate victory in his kingdom. We're going to be looking at a, quite an obscure passage at the end of Acts chapter 1. Last week, uh, James kicked us off um, in Jesus' big moment, his ascension. And then you get to Acts chapter 2, where Pentecost happens and the Spirit uh, is given to the disciples and the church is literally birthed. The world is changed. But sandwiched in between these two great events is this little obscure moment. And it's in the moments where Jesus had given his final command saying, wait in Jerusalem, do nothing, my spirit will come. And in their waiting, this is what happens. It starts in verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then it lists the 11, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. Not that Judas, the other Judas, the unfortunate Judas who shared the name with Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus. 11 get mentioned. And then it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I want you to get a quick little picture of the early church. I want you to notice just how diverse that church was in that it had young and old and men and women. At this stage, it was a small group. We'll find out it's only about 120 people at this time. In the next few days, it would be birthed into thousands and literally become millions and billions later into history. But I want you to see the early church of Acts as what it is. It is the OG revival. It's why we gave the series this title, Revival, because it was a revival that birthed the early church. And so often we get it mistaken and think, well, it was great and it was happening then, but what, what's happening now? I also want us not to miss the fact that it was the OG revival, but the revival has continued, and as we desire it now, it can be experienced now because God will continue that revival in and through us. Revival is defined as a renewed attention or a renewed focus, a renewed realization of old ways and old truth. And so it's important as we look at old truth and the old ways, knowing that God will do something very special with us. I want you to not miss that in history, we find revivals always as being a very specific move of God amongst the people through a specific time in a specific place. But it always had two key ingredients. We see it in Acts and I don't want us to miss it. The first ingredient is it will always encounter a peep, the people of God being pushed towards their true purpose in God. And the second thing is we will always see those who are far from God being drawn into God, into his love, into his mercy, and into salvation. So in a true revival, there is always going to be a going of God's people in his purpose, and there will be a bringing of people who are far from God into salvation. And it was in this going and this bringing that the early church was birthed. And it was the OG revival, and I believe that revival is continued all the way to today and will continue into eternity. It starts out well, but in the midst of their waiting between these two great events, the Ascension and Pentecost, this is what happens in verse 15. 
In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Luke is a physician. He's writing this. We heard about this last week. And so he wants to give us insight into who this Judas was, the betrayer, and what went on behind the scenes. Gives us some information that we find out in the other gospels. In verse 18, it says, Now this man, that's Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. If you remember, when he betrayed Jesus, he was paid with 21 pieces of silver. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known, I don't know how that's the amen moment. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, meaning the field of blood. For it is written in the book of, of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put two, forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, or as our Afrikaans friends call him, Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, you know the hearts of all Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. It's an obscure passage. It might seem like a random moment sandwiched between these two great events, but I really believe that this passage was recorded for a reason, and it's going to speak deeply to you and me. Why don't you pray with me and we'll get into it. Father God, I wanna thank you so much for your word. I wanna thank you for your truth that seeks out every single heart, that calls us to respond, to respond in what we will do, not just taking in information, not just allowing it to become head knowledge, but allowing it to drop into heart knowledge, knowing that you are a God who gives us a word that is transformational, not just informational, but transformational. Lord, would you do a work in each and every heart? Would you be over my words? Would these be your words and not mine? Would you take these moments we get to share? Would you do much with them? Would you reveal yourself, your spirit? And Lord, would all glory go to you and everybody said, amen. I really do believe that this passage was recorded and this, these, uh, this account was recorded for a reason. And I believe it's because as I've dived deep into it, I think this is one of the early failures of the early church. I'm gonna explain why I think that. I really do believe that in this moment, the early church uh, made a mistake. I think they had picked the wrong guy at the wrong time um, by the wrong ways. And I wanna lay out what that looks like. But as we jump into this, I wanna look at it under these two big questions. The first one is this, did they get it wrong? And the second one is, well, then how do we get it right? How do we get it right? First question is, did they get it wrong? So I'll say this up front, and this is actually what I love about God's word, about studying the Bible and diving deep into what God's truth is in the word he's given us. I think the mistake we sometimes make is we see the whole Bible as prescriptive, whereas 
The Bible is a compilation of prescriptive text where it prescribes what we should believe, what is black and white, what we, how we should think and how we should act. But it is also a description of the events in humanity and God's effect and his uh, inter interventions with humanity. And so you will find in this book descriptions of events. And the question is, and the responsibility falls to us, empowered by the Holy Spirit to dive into God's truth to say, Lord, what do you wanna say to us through it? I really believe this passage is not prescriptive. It's not prescribing what we should do or shouldn't do. Actually, I wanna say this up front. The Bible isn't explicit in this passage saying they made a mistake or they didn't. And so I'll put it out to you right now. I may be wrong. I'll say that up front. I may be wrong, but I wanna take you on the journey I've gone in in studying this passage and what I believe God has to say through it. And I do believe that they had made a mistake because the instruction was wait, do nothing. What do they do? They go do something. Spirit hadn't come yet. And they, so I hope everyone gets that. Let's go with it. I want to lay out the journey I've gone on. And I want to give you three reasons I believe this may have been a mistake on the part of the early church. First reason was this. If you take a look at the initiator, Peter himself, He's quite well known throughout scripture, pre-Pentecost, post-Pentecost, throughout the book of Acts, throughout the gospels. He's quite well known as being a hothead. He's quite well known for jumping the gun. He's quite well known for uh, speaking in moments where he probably should keep quiet. He's quite well known for taking a moment to places it probably shouldn't go. And so the initiator immediately raise up, raises a little red flag in the midst of the waiting period where you're meant to do nothing and he stands up and goes, let's do something. Second reason, the instruction. Jesus' command to them in his final words was wait in Jerusalem, do nothing. The Spirit will come and he will empower you to do all that I have called you to do. And in the midst of the waiting, they pick something that seemingly is good. Guys, in scripture it says we should replace Judas, let's do that. But I think it was the wrong time in the wrong way and I think they had fallen into making a mistake. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there was some good in this, even in the model for seeking out God's truth in the matter, even in the, the, the motivation and the heart behind, hey, we want to see scripture fulfilled, because that's very clear. I think there's some things we can pull from Peter and the apostles' actions here that are a model for us as Christians that we should take notes on. The first one is this, that Christians must follow scripture. Peter's first words are, remember what it said in the Old Testament. Remember what was prophesied about the betrayer, Judas. And so he says, we are to follow scripture. We must replace him. He then also leads them into, hey, well, let's pray about this and then we will choose. So he sets out a model that as Christians, we're actually called to pray first and then act. How often do we get that order switched? where we go ahead and then realize, oh, maybe this isn't the thing. Hey, God, would you help me here? Pray first and then act. And they put forward these two tested men as options to fill that 12th seat. And as they do, they cast lots to make the decision to choose between the two. 
Maybe you don't know what casting lots is. Um, I'll quickly fill you in. It's an Old Testament practice, but actually was a very helpful and accepted way to seek the will of God. God's people has, have done this before. It actually is spoken about in the Old Testament as a helpful way to seek what God's will is between uh, two options. And so lots, uh, I've got a picture for you just to give you an idea of what they look like. They were often made of stone or bone, and they are basically the ancestors of what we would know as dice. And so in the midst of choosing between uh, one option or another option, you would throw dice and see where the lot would be cast. Would it go to the one option or would it go to the other? As they cast lots between these two men that they had put forward, uh, the lot falls to Joseph, I mean, to Matthias, not Joseph. <laughs> Don't want to be that guy. And their decision is then made. Proverbs speaks a lot about casting lots and actually is quite complimentary and positive around the idea of casting lots. It says in, Ver, in Proverbs 18, 18, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. In Proverbs 16, 33, it says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The last thing I think we can take notes on, and it's something that we can model and emulate from this uh, early church, is that Christians should always give God the final call. They had, they had seen scripture, they had prayed, they had then acted, they put forward the two names, but ultimately they give the final call over to God. God, would you show, would you reveal, you are the one who knows the hearts of all men, would you decide? God, would you have the final call? And they cast lots. But where I think they had gone into error or where they had made a mistake was they were relying not just on the wrong time for something to be happening. I think they were relying on a method that was very quickly becoming outdated because it was very clear the Spirit was coming. And I think they had forgotten the words of Jesus in John chapter 16. He says this to his disciples, when the Spirit of what? Of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. They were seeking a good truth. This is something that, that, that scripture talks about, something we should fulfill. Let's replace Judas. God, would you, would you reveal that truth to us? But the means by which they try to get it was outdated. They forgot that what was coming was the spirit of truth who would empower them who would actually literally be the means by which they would hear the voice of God and be able to walk in the truth that he calls. I think they got their timing wrong. The New Testament has a greater means of seeking the truth of God, the voice of God, because it's his spirit alive and active within us. We don't need to cast lots anymore. We don't need to rely on those methods, they had their time, they had their day in the sun, but that time is done. We have the spirit. Last reason was this, the improvement. We can't miss that later on in the New Testament, there would be one who is chosen to be an apostle. And he is not chosen by Lot, he's actually chosen by Jesus himself where Jesus would actually call him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so on the road to Damascus, Jesus would meet a guy called Saul, knock him off his horse, call out his opposition to Jesus himself, to his church, to his way, to Christianity at the time, and say, no longer will you be an enemy, but now you will be my apostle. No longer will you go against my name, but you will walk in my name. 
and all glory will go to me as you bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And your name will no longer be Saul, your name will be Paul. And Paul the apostle gets called directly by Jesus. I think Jesus chose his replacement. I think Jesus was the one who made the call and fulfilled the scripture that Peter spoke about. I believe it was fulfilled, but I, I, I'll go with when it's fulfilled by Jesus himself. Paul would actually go on to write most of the New Testament. He's gonna feature heavily in the book of Acts. We're gonna to get to know him really, really well. But I think I love the realness of this passage. I actually love that the apostles may have got this wrong because notice what comes later. We heard about it last week. The Spirit would come. The Spirit would empower them that even if they had made a mistake, even if they had got it wrong, Jesus would still use them. He would still empower them and he would still accomplish everything he committed to, everything he said he would through these weak vessels. It's that old adage that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And isn't it true of these apostles? So the question is then, if we're seeking God's truth, if we're actually seeking the path that he has set for us to move in his time, by his spirit, by his power, how do we get it right? That's our second big question. I think there are three ways that we can get it right, and this passage is going to help us understand it. The first way is, I think we need to heed the warning. I've noticed this, I've heard this, I've been around this for a long time. I think so many of us can fall for this trap when we look at the early church and particularly uh, the church in Acts. I think sometimes at best we can idealize them and at worst we idolize them. Both of them are a trap and both of them have a horrible effect on us as individuals and us corporately because we idealize them to the point where we say, hey, we just desire it so badly. Why is it not happening with us? Or we idolize it so bad that if we try to do it any other way, God's not in it. I think we can't miss just how dangerous that trap is because I think we begin to see that Acts is not a story of superhero next level Christians being used by Jesus. But actually it's the story of Jesus initiating revival, building his church through very messy, broken people in the midst of a messy and broken world. The effect it will have on us if we have that view individually is, well, if they are the superhero Christians that get used by God in the book of Acts, then I'm unworthy. Then I'm not up to scratch. Then I am unqualified. And suddenly we discredit and discount ourselves from being used by God, but we forget that God will always bring strength in weakness. I want you to know God used the unqualified. He used the weak. Because those in the book of Acts were weak, broken, unqualified, and yet in the midst of that weakness, with the strength of God, he would bring ultimate victory. The same thing he did with them, he can do with us because the same spirit he gave to them, he has given to us. Corporately, it can also mess us up because we begin to look at acts and either we idolize or we idealize what they did in the early church. And so we now prescribe what church is, what church does and how it should look now based on what we see happening then. And we forget that God often doesn't work the same way twice. Don't get me wrong, it's the same purpose, same mission, same power, the same spirit, but a very different time. 
And so that means there are principles that we can learn. There are things embedded in who we are and what we do. But if we just think, hey, if they did it in Acts like this, copy, paste, it's going to happen like that now. I just want you to know that's not, that we're going we're gonna to run into walls. Because that's generally not how God moves. You look how God, when God moves in the miraculous, it's very rarely the same thing twice. When you looked at how Jesus would heal people, it was very rarely the same method twice. He had things that were embedded and were real. It was always about salvation. It wasn't just about the person being healed. It was about their ultimate healing. But the method and the means by which he got there was often different. Because he would be the one who said, cool, you're healed. Healing would happen. Then the next time he would use his spit, make some mud and dirt, put it on eyes, and they would be healed. And then he would meet a leper and he would tell them, go to the temple, cleanse yourself. And then they would be healed. He went through different methods, different means, but he always accomplished what he was accomplishing in different ways. And so if we think the method is always going to be corporately, well, copy, paste. They did it in Acts like this. Acts didn't have drums. We're not going to have drums. I've had those conversations. Then we're going to miss the mark and miss the beauty and the gold that's in the book of Acts. That God will take weak people and he will put his strength into them and bring ultimate victory. We miss the goal that Jesus is the one who is building his church. I want you to also know that we can't ever overlook just how messed up and broken the early church was. If we look at the early church with these rose-tinted lenses, we're gonna miss the, 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 the real beauty of the pages of the book of Acts. Because I want you to know this. The original, uh, what was Jesus' command? He told them, stay in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria. There were moments where they were told to go and they didn't. They stayed. When he says, go to Samaria, go to those who you despise, those who you actually see as second-class citizens, those who you define are not as worthy of my love, of my mercy, of my gospel. Go to them, extend the kingdom to them, we find out a lot more about that later in Acts. This is a quick, quick, quick little exercise. Um, if you are a Gentile, raise your hand. Everyone raise your hands because I'm pretty sure you're there. I highly doubt I have any hands down. Jew, Gentile, I can just tell you right now, 99.9% .9 of us, we fall into the Gentile category. Can I just tell you, when it came to the early church, these early Christians, they wanted none of us in the church of Jesus. They actually didn't believe we were worthy of it. And it was something that they had to, that God had to work deeply. We can't miss that they were broken. Because the problem we were run into is we say, oh, well, the church of then was this powerful, spirit-led, obedient church. And somehow today we are the wayward, disobedient, completely poisoned by culture church of now. I want to tell you, they were just as wrong, just as broken, and they were the church. And we are broken and messed up now, but we're the church still. And just as Jesus worked it out in them, worked through them, and accomplished everything he wanted to in them, he will do the same with us. Because he gave a spirit to them, and that spirit is alive and active, still today building the church of Jesus. And it's building through you and me. And so we might not be qualified, we might be messy, we might be broken, we might be lacking, we might be in weakness, but that is a good thing, because when we are weak, we can actually access his strength to find victory. That's the first thing. We need to heed that warning. Second thing we need to do is we need to hear and follow. 
God understands how important it is that we can hear and discern his voice and his truth. Because when we know that, then we're able to follow the path he has set out for us. He might not give us every single step A to Z, but he'll definitely give us the next step. But how do we know where to go if we haven't heard his voice, sought out his truth, just as they were trying to do here? And he's given, us, given it in two specific ways. He gives us his spirit to hear and follow, and he also gives us leaders over us in authority to hear and follow. I don't want you to mishear me and think I'm just, um, just bagging on Peter and, and thinking, you know, giving him a bad rap. I want you to know I love Peter. Because honestly, he's the perfect example of strength and weakness. He actually makes, uh, makes me feel a lot better when I get it wrong because he got it wrong a lot. And yet, even in, this, in these moments where just a few weeks before he was denying Jesus, in what would happen in a few days is he would actually be empowered by the Spirit to preach one of the greatest sermons in all of history where the church of Jesus would be born and it would literally change the face of the earth and all of human history forever. Same guy, and the same spirit that did that in Peter works in you and me. So how much more can we expect that God will do in and through us? As much as Peter had moments where he didn't get it, where he would say the wrong thing at the wrong time and get an, have an awkward moment with everyone, in the moments he did get it, he got it better than anyone else. I love this moment in Matthew 16 where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And as he's having the conversation, he asks this question of them. He says, who do you say I am? And all of them are too scared to answer, but Peter steps forward, takes a leadership role, and he declares this in Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus will reply to him in verse 18 and say, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We can't miss that Peter was the appointed human leader of the apostles, placed there by Jesus. And so it is a principle, a biblical principle, that God will place leaders over us in authority to hear from him and also be led by them that actually God will put leaders, even in the context of a church, over you and me so that there is an authority that is used by God as a tool in his hand to lead you and me into his truth and into his way. We can't get away from that. And I love this moment where Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church. And he says, the rock I'm gonna build on, and sometimes we misunderstand it, we, don't, we miss it in this verse. He doesn't say the rock he's gonna build his church on is a guy called Peter, a flawed yet faithful disciple. The rock he's talking about is what Peter just declared, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. That is the truth that the church will be built on because that is the truth that has the power to defeat sin and death and evil and make a way and a means for us to be redeemed to our creator so that we have a relationship with him into eternity. That is what it will be built on. It's never built on the leader. It's never built on the appointed leader. It is built on the rock solid truth of who God is, of who Jesus is. But God will appoint leaders to help us, to care for us, to serve us, as imperfect as those leaders might be. Peter was imperfect. I am imperfect. Cy, Vaughn, James, we are imperfect. I want you to know this. We are going to mess it up. We are going to have moments where we disappoint even you. 
where we maybe even hurt you. And just as a pastoral moment, because I know in the midst of this, I understand that in our society today, and maybe where you're sitting right now, you've had a bad experience where maybe you got hurt in church or hurt by a leader, because often the argument is, well, that authority or that leader that is over me right now isn't honorable, isn't holy, messed up. I just want you to know, when it is an authority that's been placed over you by God, it's important to know that that is a weak leader who can mess up, who can disappoint, but we know all have fallen short. And it doesn't excuse what they have done or not done, but what it does do is help us process through the hurt that in the midst of that weakness, God's strength can come into it and bring victory so that we're not held back by the hurt of that leader, but actually we're able to process it knowing that God will work that out for our good. I just want to take this moment just as a pastor to say you might be in that space where you've been hurt. You might be in that space where you've been let down, where you've been disappointed. Can I tell you, you don't have to excuse the action. They will be held, held accountable for it. But as you look at it and process it and the story you begin to tell yourself needs to turn into, hey, that is a weak moment. That is not a great moment. That isn't something that's from God. But believe me, in the hands of God, good can come from it. And it doesn't hold us back from jumping in to what God has called us, jumping into the community that God has called us, jumping into the authority that he has placed over us when another leader comes. Actually, he helps us process it in a holy and helpful way so that we can walk forward restored. We can walk forward in his power by his spirit. As the band joins me on stage, I think it's so important to grab a hold of this idea that if we are seeking the truth of God, if we're seeking the will of God, wanting to discern his voice, we have been given these tools in our hands. And they are tools that we see can do damage for the kingdom. They are tools like, the, like this. They are tools like prayer, where we get to hear the voice of God. They are tools like the spirit, which helps us discern God's truth when we are in scripture, when we're in circumstances, when we're in moments uh, where we are dealing with people in situations and circumstances that are a bit murky and a bit unclear. He gives us our, his word that is rock solid, something to, to stand as a firm foundation. And he also gives us wise counsel, even those who are put in authority over us to care for us and to lead us and to help us. And when we put all those things together, we're able to discern this and seek the truth of God so that we walk forward empowered by him. Last thing I wanna talk about is this. As we prepare our hearts to have communion. Last thing in how we get this right is we obey. When we can hear the voice of God, when we can hear the truth of God, we can then follow it in obedience. We can take that next step of obedience. And the step, I think, I want to take you back to Jesus's words there in Matthew 16. At the end of that verse, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, I'm building my church. You were called into that church. You're called into that movement. You're called into that OG revival and you get to see it lived out now. But understand that when you're in the midst of it, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus' words are often misunderstood because at a very face value, quick reading, what it sounds like, and this is true, 
is that when we're in his power, in his kingdom, moving in his way, we are covered and defended against the attack of the enemy. That's what it sounds like. But as we dive deeper into his phrasing, he doesn't say, hey, the attack of hell won't prevail. He says the gates of hell. Understand what gates are. Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive measures. And so the gates of hell are not the attack of hell, but the defense of hell. And so it means when we grab a hold of this and we, and we walk in obedience, we're called into a fight, called into a fight of faith to advance the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is when you move in this way, what you will do as you attack the kingdom of darkness, as you lay, lay siege to hell, its defenses cannot prevail. The kingdom of good darkness will fall as the kingdom of light advances. And that is what we are called into. If you want to talk about what a step of obedience is, it's that. It's understanding that God's truth is going to reveal itself to us and it calls us into this fight where we are literally called into the kingdom of light and called to defeat darkness wherever it might be. That we are actually to bring the light of Jesus into every situation, every circumstance because His truth will always illuminate the darkest areas of our world, the darkest areas of our society. That's what we are called into. I wanna wrap it up like this. I don't know what has been speaking to you. I don't know which of those, uh, of those elements in how we get it right has spoken to you. Maybe you're in the space where you need to heed the warning. Maybe you have been looking at this, the Bible, Scripture, the book of Acts characters as those superheroes used by God and therefore I can't be involved. I hope that you've heeded the warning and understood that God uses weakness to bring His strength, to bring about His victory. Maybe you need to hear and follow. Maybe there's some truth that you're seeking right now on the front end of 2022. Can I tell you, He has put tools in our hand and weapons for the battle so that we can hear, discern, and ultimately follow His voice. And we do that in obedience. Maybe you're sitting here and you go, Dunks, you don't know. My life is literally a sum of thousands of steps of disobedience to God. Do you know how you change that trajectory? One step of obedience. Because it changes everything. The whole trajectory changes. You can be a thousand miles from God. But all it takes is a 180 degree turn. And a step in the right direction. And knowing that we don't do that in our strength, we do that in His. That in fact, we don't have to get strong before we take that step. That actually it's in our weakness, God will meet us in His strength to take us forward. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, as we right now prepare our hearts to worship, as we prepare all that we have, every little part of our life, as you've been poking at parts of our heart where there are challenges, where we're seeking your truth, where we're seeking your spirit, where we're seeking power for maybe where we don't feel powerful. I pray that our view would change, that we would see our weakness as something good because it's in that space that your strength can be enacted. Jesus, as we sing, as we offer up our lives, as we prepare ourselves to take communion, the greatest picture of strength and weakness, knowing that you were the strong, the, the strength of heaven and you took on the weakness of man for us. I pray that we would know that the battle belongs to you, that you are the one who does the fighting, that you are the one who calls us into a battle that you have already won. And that as we sing, you would be doing something new in us. 
oh, this isn't some New Year's resolution, some New Year's new me thing. This is actually saying, Lord, you tangibly do something that only you could do. This is a, a, a word not of information, but a word of transformation. Would you transform our hearts? Would you transform our minds? Would you transform them by your truth and by the power of your spirit, the power of your gospel, the good news of Jesus? Lord, would you do business in hearts, even as we sing, even as we remember you in communion? Lord, would you call us to that next step of obedience? And Lord, would we have the courage to step into it, knowing that you meet us along the way, that you fuel us along the way, that you empower us. We don't go forward in our own strength, but in yours. We pray these things in your name. Let's sing together.